Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. Harlan and I have intentionally set aside several episodes each year to cover a broader range of important news in the healthcare and health realm. And so I want to start off today with something that has not made mainstream news, but is well covered in sort of like medical Twitter right now. And that is a cheating scandal that arises out of Nepal. And there are so many reasons why this is really provocative right now, Harlan, but suffice it to say 832 people, which is a huge number, it's like eight medical school size, who took their exams at this Nepal testing center have had their scores invalidated. And as you and I know, these scores are required for you to be able to do a U.S. residency in order to enter medical training in the United States. 830 individuals have had their scores invalidated. And it is like it is like a spy novel in a way, because the combination of investigations that have gone on by this US-based testing service to be able to discover that there was a cheating scandal going on. And let me just be clear for our listeners: there's no question that cheating is going on. The issue is. Have we found the right people? And is it much, much larger than this 832 people that we've discovered? Do they know that whether all 832 were actually involved or have there also been some people who might have been harmed because others were cheating? It's unclear the extent of this in so many different ways. And people have pointed out online that others have been harmed in a way because some of these people already got interview spots this past year that they otherwise might not have gotten. And that has crowded out other people yeah. from getting interview this spots. This is such a high stakes issue. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that there are people who go to great lengths to try to figure out ways to game it, given what it is. You know, I'm sort of, there's so many different ways to go on this story. I mean, for one thing, you know, what do we think about testing in general? I mean, are these really good barometers of how people are going to do it? I've known some extraordinary individuals, great investigators, kind human beings, really smart people who had test anxiety and had trouble yeah. passing these tests yeah. and, and wouldn't get interviews. I couldn't, I would call up program directors and say, no, this person will be a star. I've spent a lot of time with them. And basically because their test scores weren't good or because they failed one time, they were, they were basically said, that's how we screen and, and we're not going to consider them. And and, you know, I think in this new era of medicine as well, one of a lot of decision support and information science, you know, whether or not you can take a test, whether you can memorize, whether you can regurgitate back what they're expecting is in any way an indicator. What they say is it's an indicator of medical student grades or it's, a, it's right. an indicator it's a of- predictor of how well you'll do on the next set of or tests. Or on the next set of tests. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean- that you'll be a great doctor. So I couldn't agree with you more on those points, but let me push back in the other direction about why I think testing does have real value. I think that there are very few truly objective measures of people's aptitude, knowledge base, and so on. There's a lot of subjective measures, and we've learned, and I've sat in admissions committees for three decades now, we've learned that there are some schools for which getting a 4.0 is very easy, other schools a 3.3, I always think of UC Berkeley in this way, a 3.3 is a great GPA. So scores from the schools have to be measured against other scores at that schools, and not only that, by different courses at those schools. So there's not a lot of objective data that we can use when we're evaluating our uh, student applicants. 
Scores are one of them, and they are very much imperfect. And as someone who went to a city college and a state medical school and has sat on these committees, what I've observed is that the students that come from the least resourced institutions, not Yale, not Harvard, not Wash U or Vanderbilt, like the way they can get a leg up is by doing well on this particular... Yeah, but they, they select for certain characteristics. I mean, this is what, what bothers me. Look, you happen to be an extraordinary clinician and teacher and someone who had the ability to do well on these tests. Yes, I did. So you could start somewhere and say, I know that's the, the hoop it I helped. need to jump through. Yeah, for me, it helped. And, and that ended up being a really important uh, step for you and, and an important opportunity. But, but imagine that there are a lot of other people who would be equally skilled. I mean, in a way, what are we selecting for? And the question is whether or not these tests help in that regard. I, I was on the board of the American Board of Internal Medicine who puts together the certification and, and recertification yeah. Yeah. processes for physicians, internists, and subspecialists within internal medicine. And when I really saw it up close and personal, I mean, the kind of esoteric questions that, that oh, you, yeah. you, you know, it, whether you could answer these multiple choice uh, and do this pattern recognition. You don't have to convince me. I mean, I agree with that. And they do all this psychometric testing. Yeah. They say, well, the test is valid for what it is. Right. But to me, you know, whether or not it was, it, it really screened out the people that you wanted to screen out, whether it screened in the people that you wanted to screen. And then, now I'll just take you one other thing. Again, you know, you hear me, I'm banging on yeah. this drum of AI all the time. But in a world where we could actually go back to where people were interviewed and in, in solving the kind of problems that you see in clinical practice, I mean, we abandoned that because it was too resource intensive. There was a day, right. and, and humans aren't very good at consistency, right. but there was a day when in the American Board of Internal Medicine, you actually had a face-to-face -face interaction with That's a right. clinician. And, and you know, are there better ways for us to do this, both to give anyone, no matter where you are, a leg up? Because there is a bias towards Ivy League or certain yeah. prestige institutions, which is also not fair. So- how do we begin to get to a fair system where people can get through, but it's selecting out for the characters so, you're looking for? So I agree with you. But again, what I will point out is if you're at Yale, if you're at Harvard, whether you're wealthy or not, anything else, you have access to resources. You have access to personnel who will guide you, mentor you, and and get you on that path that a lot of other students don't have. And so what I'm saying is what you've said is all true, that testing is imperfect, but it's like, you know, very Churchillian. It may be the least imperfect of objective measures that we could use well, for this purpose. A, but not all measures are meaningful. Not all, uh, you know, uh, but, but there is a difference, that's right? We do can know, be measured well right now. But we do know that there are students that will graduate from a good school with a 4.0 index who cannot be a physician. Like, they're not inclined to the sciences. Like, we, we are testing a little bit about physics and chemistry and math knowledge and logic in these exams. They're imperfect, but they are testing something. It's not just esoteric. By the way, knowledge. how much physics are you using in your... I mean, well, you're a radiologist. <laughs> Bad okay, question. So but yeah. I'll just say that, yeah. you know, the kind of things, even the first two years of the curriculum of medical school, you know, and then they're being tested on on Krebs cycle, you know, organic yeah. chemistry, things like that, that that no one remembers afterwards, right? But, the life, life, half-life of the memory of these things is, is pretty... But I, you've hit on the most important point, though, which is now what we've done is we've sucked these international medical students who want to get better training, who are all of a sudden up against, like, how do I distinguish myself? It's only the grade, and they get sucked into a cheating scandal that maybe even culturally might not even seem like cheating. Most of this is about memorizing recall questions. That's what it's about. They get sucked into this. 
now they're caught in the scandal and they're- And their careers are almost over as a result. So I guess you would say that you were in favor of Yale's recent decision to reinstitute the- I was. There's going to be a requirement now. Is that what it is? Yes, but they're giving more flexibility. So Yale, uh, what you- Yale and Dartmouth, yeah. Right, is, is that Yale has reinstituted a requirement for standardized testing for admission to Yale, but it is no longer- just the SAT or ACT. It is a number of other options that are standardized tests to be able to demonstrate your relative aptitude. So the one thing I, I will just finish this topic, but just the one thing I didn't understand about that was that Yale came out and said, we believe that this actually helps in a way it was sort of the it's case you were making. Yes. But I thought one of the issues was that well-resourced students were able to pay money to get the extra tutoring and yeah. so forth. And so that what was unfair was that they were getting a leg up on that advantage. Yale came out and said, actually, what we think is that for people at low resource areas- That's my argument. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so here's what I've used standardized tests for. I don't, when I've used standardized tests, whether it was on the med school admissions committee or for residency selection, or even now up until a few years at the School of Public Health, I've always used it to establish basic minimum competency. Like, are they going to do okay? I don't need them to be a 528 on an MCAT or 99th percentile GRE. But if somebody on their overall record is somewhere like, are they a 10th percentile or are they a 40th percentile? Because if they're 40th percentile, I can work with them. If they're 10th percentile with our curriculum- Then they may not be prepared enough. They can't for... do it. All right, let me go to another topic, Howie, that I, yeah. I thought you might find interesting. I don't. Do you know uh, Stuart Buck? I don't. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Stuart o- over time. He was, was a vice president at Arnold Ventures, and and uh, he he's a, he was uh, got his PhD in education policy at the University of Arkansas, and, and has a law degree from Harvard Law, where he was editor of the Law Review, and um, and and so and he's a guy who's been interested in a long time about how research is conducted, and and has spent what well, spent a lot of time. I guess in my work with Open Science, I interacted somewhat with with Stuart, and in a grant that he provided to to Yale called CRIT that Amy Kapinski was uh, oh, yeah. lead on with well, Joe school. Ross. And yeah. so uh, he's got this thing called the Good Science Project, which is a, a pretty interesting effort where he's trying to, in particular, uh, to say, what are we doing with our science policy in the United States and what could we be doing better? How could we in some ways be uh, configuring this so that we're uh, better promoting the interests of science, and he's focusing a lot on NIH, but not not exclusively. And so, he wrote this blog piece: "Why are we screwing over researchers who make innovative discoveries?" And, and he starts by talking about how current funding, federal law, allows universities to patent discoveries made with federal funding. And, and you know about this, yeah. right? I mean, this is the way in which this sort of tech transfer thing has really uh, taken off, and. The origin of this, by the way, is that what we didn't want to have happen is for universities to say, oh, the NIH funded this, and therefore it's really government use, and anybody can use it, and nobody then commercializes it. Nobody feels the profit incentive to drive them to take this great innovation and commercialize it. This gives universities incentives to commercialize. Exactly. So there's this Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 in which Congress sort of set this forth, and, and what what Stewart says in this piece is that there are many empiric studies that show that innovation is greater when researchers have more control over their work. And, and what tends to happen is, as you and I know, if we 
invent something at Yale. Actually, we don't own it. Correct. Yeah, Yale owns it. If you're doing it in your capacity, in your job, using Yale's resources, there is an exception to that, that if you discover something on your day off in your home, not using Yale's resources, then Yale doesn't own it. But for the most part, the real lab work, the big stuff that's going on at Yale is Yale's property. So, so, he would, so basically, these universities get the intellectual property, and then they, they usually are just licensing it. So he was looking at this list of licensing revenue of American universities. And University of Pennsylvania is at the top at $1.2 billion oh in licensing God. revenue. In the last year? This is 2022. Wow. Which dwarfs uh, the next one, which is Emory, which has $279 million. Harvard at $152. New York University at $100 million. Wow. By the way, if you look down the top 10 or so, I'm, I'm not seeing Yale yet. So Yale's lagging a little bit compared to some of these. But this issue that he's bringing up is around the University of Pennsylvania, which is, you know, largely that revenue is from the the work on the the, the, uh -oh. the vaccine, yeah. right? So the mRNA vaccine, which uh, was really the work of Weissman and, and Kerko, who, you know, did yeah. this. But but this thing about Kerko is that, uh, here's what she told uh, CNBC from Stewart's piece, I was demoted four times. <laughs> she tells of, of her time at University of Pennsylvania where she was a research assistant professor before eventually being pushed out. And and all of her work was discouraged and, and demoted four times, yeah. you know, to the point where, you know, she had no future there and they sort of pushed her out. Meanwhile, now they're making, you know, a Billion. boatload, yeah. a boatload yeah. of money yeah. Yeah. offer. And Stewart just raises the question, is this, is this fair? You know, that basically here's someone who, they didn't really support. I mean, there may be many people here yeah. whose inventions are only the result of the largest of the university and the support, but here's someone who it didn't. And, uh, you know, the, the exact details of this licensing agreement between Penn and pharmaceutical companies is, is not really known, but it is known that the vast majority of that money is being made out of this this particular thing. So I, I don't know what you think about this. You know, is this a good bargain, you know, that Yale this is, yeah, and other it, universities actually it, own our work? It's like everything else, it's imperfect. We really want things to be commercialized. We want the innovators to be given incentives and Yale does that. So they typically give the innovator some small percent of this amount. It's not 100%, but it's also not nothing. And then Yale should, or in this case, Penn, should be working on behalf of the innovator to help them commercialize it. They should be finding a CEO. They should be yeah. uh, getting the patent attorneys involved. and every, they, they should be investing resources. And, and I'll say, you know, when I read this, I, you know, that particular case does seem egregious. It was unfortunate they didn't support her. Now they're bragging about, you know, having yeah. her there. Of course, Drew Weissman was very important, the faculty member who also was right. involved in this. But I would say Yale, you know, we've had Josh Cabal on with us, Yale Ventures. I, honest, God, to me, for, I think they're the best, uh, you know, of this thing. Yale takes a small, in the end, Yale either takes a small amount of equity or gets involved in licensing agreements. But to me, it it's, they're very fair. It's a group that It's that certainly helps. trying to be. It's, it's very difficult because don't forget, on top of that, you have to balance the conflict of interests on NIH grants. So you get into trouble on that as well, where... Yale does have a responsibility to preserve the integrity of the scientist who may be involved in the clinical trial uh, or, you know, continuing to work on it at the same time trying to commercialize it. There's lots and of And most issues. of us who are faculty have benefited so much from being here. You know, yeah. there is a lot the university has done for us. So I, I'm just going to say from my perspective, I, especially with, with the Yale Ventures, it's not just Yale Ventures, the history here. Actually, it's it goes... Uh, be, 
before that. John Sodestrom before Josh was terrific, yeah. you know. And so Yale's got, I think, a history of doing this really well. Uh, but anyway, we can, let's go on. But I, I just want to say I thought it was interesting because it is true. Gosh, Penn's making all this money for someone they essentially pushed out and didn't support. There's, it, no, there's no perfect out there. You know, but this it, was not, it's not a great Yeah, story. well, what they did with her is, is particularly sad, yeah. yeah. Um, but she's come out on top. All right, you, you're um, going to take us to a measles story, right? Yeah, exactly. And again, I don't want to make too big a deal of it. Last year, we talked about one polio case that never got beyond one polio case. And so that was a good news story. Measles is continuing to grow in the United States right now. But I want to focus in on Florida. And not because their outbreak is particularly horrible. They just have eight cases as of yesterday. We're recording this on a Wednesday. So eight cases as of Tuesday this week. And uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is the Surgeon General there, for reasons that are beyond my comprehension, has decided to go against like very mainstream public health practice. How do you manage a measles outbreak? You have a measles outbreak at a school. You have a certain number of students in that school who are not vaccinated and therefore at very high risk of both getting and then transmitting measles. So you have a measles outbreak in Florida. It's a relatively small outbreak. It's at one school and the Surgeon General has decided to go against public health advice that has existed for decades now. And the advice is pretty simple. It says that if you are unvaccinated or otherwise might be capable of transmitting measles, you should quarantine for up to three weeks. Uh, it is known that the incubation period for measles is typically like 14 days. They extend that to three weeks. But he's saying doesn't even matter parents should make their own decision about whether the child should be sent to school. And that is so counter to good public health practice that it really beggars the question of what is motivating him. So here. these are people who've been exposed but aren't sick. That Correct. Talking about. Yeah. And, and not vaccinated. And not vaccinated. Yeah, measles is a tough one. You know, the, the, the reproduction number, people may remember back when we were talking about this with COVID, where we said each person might be able to infect like five or six other people. Measles is something like 12 to 18. So, it's, you know, it, it's um, probably the most contagious infectious disease that we know. And the other thing is that measles is not just a rash and fever. It can lead to very serious Including health death. complications, pneumonia, encephalitis, even death. And especially young kids or, or uh, you know older adults, yeah. this can be catastrophic. The, we, we tend to try to get this thing called herd immunity where we're trying, and people again may remember this from the COVID pandemic where we say, can we get enough people? And But for measles, it's thought you need 95% or more. And by the way, this school probably has that. So one could say that the risk of sending these kids back to school is not going to lead to some massive outbreak, but the risk is that they do spread to an immunocompromised kid or a kid who got his vaccine but didn't get full immunity and then brings it home. So there's lots of secondary effects. Yeah. And I think this just is going into these, you know, discussions that we've been having for a long time. I mean, I don't know. What do you did you think that we should have held kids out of COVID pandemic? I know it's a different for, for the beginning, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I was on, you know, on Twitter, went on record and said, weight of the evidence seems to favor pulling kids out of school. Based on what little I know, and I'm not an infectious disease expert, I'm not a true COVID expert, it was just based on what little I knew, I felt like we kept them out of school a little, not a little too long, a lot too long. Yeah, we became afraid. I, and I think that, you know, we're talking a lot about what the downstream effects are with math scores and other things. I think there's all going to be a balance, but it is true that this guy is way out of the mainstream and it's interesting. Uh, he is in a policy position in Florida. 
So, you know, whether or not he's right or wrong, I think for us, we believe based on the experts that we rely on that this isn't a wise decision. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're in a moment in time where, you know, different states are pursuing very different policies. I think they're becoming, I think it's like true in COVID too, because it's almost an experiment. And, you know, we've done work to show that the states that were most permissive in COVID probably 20, 30% more deaths. And, you know, there were tolls in actual numbers of people who died. I'm, I'm sorry to say that we may see that same thing again, again here. Yep. Hey, I want to do a quick hit here, uh, just because there was something that came out yesterday. There's a company called Viking Therapeutics that shot up 80% yesterday because they were produced uh, positive results on one of their leading drug candidates for that's a GLP-1 agonist. And you know, you and I have talked about these anti-obesity medications. Actually, it's a combination med with uh, GLP-1 and a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, GIP. Oh, okay. Kind of like what yeah. uh, Lily's sure also been pushing forward. Yeah. Is that? But, yeah, with the combo. Yep. yep. Uh, exactly. And, uh, but you know, it, it just gets to what we're talking about. Like we're in the, we're going to be in this decade of remarkable innovation. And, and I do think that one after another, you're going to start seeing these positive studies. What my question is going to be is when we have such an, a large number of choices, will it drive down prices? That's from Will hoping. it increase access? That's from hoping. And will we get to a better moment? Because right now we've got tremendous drugs, but there's so many people who can't get access. Absolutely. I mean, and look, in a perfect world, we would be completely equitable in terms of how we distribute them. But in our imperfect world, I would rather have a slightly less effective GLP-1 sold for a dramatically lower price to populations who otherwise couldn't afford it than not having it at all. So I'm hoping we do get a lot of competition and that, you know, just like there was Lipitor and Crestor that were better than Zocor, uh, here we might have certain GLP-1s and GIPs that are better and some are worse and hopefully they will price differently. Yeah, and just hold on to your seat. I mean, there are two things that need to happen. One, a cultural shift in how we think about obesity. It's a disease. It's not a lack of willpower or people who right. are just weak. And I will just say my current thinking about this is, you know, as I see this having an effect on blood pressure, on lipids, on, on all cardiovascular risk factors, I think, gosh, we've been in the clinic treating the manifestations of obesity, but not the root cause. And these medications are going to give us the ability to go straight to the root cause, treat obesity first, first line drug, treat obesity. And then, by the way, as a side effect, people will lose weight. But I'm just saying we're treating the, right. the cardiometabolic condition, right. the neuro condition of obesity. And then you're going to see the risk factors improve. And then the question is they may not even need to have antihypertensives right. and or diabetic medications. And so forth. It, you know, their risk will go down. Substantially. So this is going to be an interesting, interesting Yeah, I'm excited time. by this. I was yep. very happy to see that it's the more the better. Like yep. At this yep. point, we'll learn a lot. So here's a topic that I picked because you know a lot about it. And, uh, you know, and it's a preprint. So some people would say, like, why are you spending time in a preprint? Preprints haven't been peer reviewed yet. But this is a preprint from a collection of pretty impressive trialists and, and scientists. And it basically says that 22% of academically led, so from universities, clinical trials in Nordic countries from 2016 to 2019 did not report their results to the public. Any results What to was the, the percentage? 22%. Yeah. Yeah. So almost, you know, more than one in five yeah. are not reporting out. And I'm just going to start off by asking you, why is this a problem? And then tell me about why it's persisting. Well, as you know, this is an issue that 
that you know our group started writing about about 15 years ago. And, and, and it started because of the involvement I had in the Viax trial. Viax trial actually taught me so much because we got to see so much behind Remind the scenes. Remind people because it's a long time now. What was Viax? So Viax was, was a, a, a pain reliever. You know, it, it was one of these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, a but it focused two, on a right. COX-2 yeah, mechanism. Yeah. So it was a different mechanism than what aspirin, for example, or Motrin and so forth. And, right. and it, you know, thought to be highly effective, but also to affect the 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 bleeding system so that it promoted clot formation. And so, you know, and a lot of this was not known to the public at the time. So then there were a series of, of lawsuits against Merck that was saying that, you know, there was information that was held back from the public that was important that might've led people not to be treated and some of these people suffered heart attacks. So I, I got involved in this. I, I'm not someone who gets involved in many legal cases, but this one I got involved with because I wanted to surface the information that I had seen that was sequestered. It right. was, you know, part of the court proceedings. And ultimately with Joe Ross and, and, and you know, I we ended up writing maybe 10 articles about this that appeared in many high profile places. But one of the things we learned and we it indirectly led us to research around open science because we recognized that there was actually information that was held by the company that never saw the light of day. And and so but then we started seeing that this isn't just about companies but actually in academia as well there was a, a lack of of transparency around results from studies. And we did a series of, of, of studies that was showing low publications, even higher than what you're reporting now among these. And, and, and we ultimately said, well, let's look at the NIH. And in 2014, we published a study that said that if you look at, at, at trials funded by our tax dollars, the NIH tax dial, and you said, you know, what percent of them are published in peer-reviewed biomedical journals within 30 months of finishing? So on the registry, they said, we're done with the study, but within now almost two and a half years later, you know, what percentage of them have been published? Fewer than half. I, I thought of this as a betrayal of people who had entered into the studies. And, and these aren't the, the drug companies. These are actually right. largely academics. And we, it was hard to figure out, like people lost lost steam on them or they, you know, they, they didn't like the results. So it's or... not really a conspiracy theory because I think the first inclination is, oh, the drug companies are uh, suppressing this. So it's not. I, I actually thought the problem was worse within academia where there was no accountability. And by the way, you could get a, a funded for a trial, run a trial, and then put in a next grant and get funded even though you actually hadn't right. delivered right. the result to the public on, on the last trial. Now, in the decade in the United States, things have actually gotten better. There's been more attention that Yale itself has, for example, has invested. We actually have people we've hired to ensure that that trials are registered and to yeah. to try to chase folks around making sure that they're publishing the result. But, it, you know, I think there ought to be greater accountability such that if you haven't finished your last yeah, trial, right. you haven't published it, you, you shouldn't be eligible for the, another grant until you can show that that you're going to share that that information. But you know, seeing this 20-some percent, I mean, it's bothersome. One in five is horrible, but it, it has been even worse. Okay. And, and among the very best yeah. NIH. Now, I remember Rob Caleb starts talking about small, crappy trials. Sometimes he's the head of the FDA right now. Now he's head yep. of the FDA, was, but but a really renowned trialist at Duke before that. And Rob, you know, was saying, well, many, should, the, should they be published? Some of these are crappy trials. Right, right. He uses that word, crappy trials. And I say, well, then come public with it, you know. Yeah, but put them in a preprint if you have to. But still, we should see the results. Right. So, so right. yeah, uh, it, it's a thing that's been going on for a while. Great. Hey, look, I wanted to talk about something else that really interested me this week that you may have caught in the news. And that was a 93-year-old widow of a Wall Street oh, yeah. financier. And this individual, actually former 
a faculty member at Albert Einstein School of Medicine donated $1 billion with instructions that the gift be used to cover tuition for for all students. There was a nice uh, New York Times article about this. It it turned out that her husband had invested in in Berkshire Hathaway, the Warren Buffett funds very early on. He was also a financier, but had done very, obviously very yes, well, yeah. you know, and this, this generous donation really aims to cover the tuition of all medical students, yeah. you know, addressing this sort of crippling debt that many people experience. And I want to just get your thoughts on this. You know, uh, NYU, of course, had gotten a big donation previously and had gone tuition free. I mean, is this, I mean, we are one of the few countries in the world that saddle people. I mean, we, I think we're the only one maybe that saddles people with such debt. I talk to people in Europe and Canada, other countries, Australia, you know, they- It's either cheap or, or free. Yeah. Or free, you know, yeah. we, we put people in a position where they leave yeah. needing money, I know. needing money just to get, become whole. I will tell you just quickly that the thing, the thing that brings a smile to me is how did I hear about this story? My, well, your mother. My, no, no, my daughter. Oh, your daughter. Oh. My daughter loved this story, saw it like as soon as it broke and said, isn't this great? And she's not pre-med, she's pre-law, but I think she was inspired by the fact that this woman had done such a wonderful uh, selfless thing. And um, But I do, you know, I immediately tweeted about it because I do that still uh, now, good. even yeah. though I'm not a big twi- Twitter fan anymore, but I'll still tweet about it. And what I said is like, we need accountability though for the school. Now, compared to NYU, this is a very different school. Oh yeah, it's in the Bronx. It's in the Bronx. In Montefiore's, it's, which is a safety net hospital. poor yeah. population. Um, it is 60% uh, female medical students, but it's otherwise a relatively normal New York distribution of, of race. Um, and the opportunity here now is to get better representation of students at Einstein, because right now in America, you have to be able to have some wherewithal to be able to go far enough to go to medical school without bankrupting yourself. Like you can do as I did, go to a city college. Is it also true that medical schools actually need some people who are paying the full freight in order to make this? Because if oh they give God. if they give scholarships to, I mean, they have to have a certain percentage. Of course. So then this this takes that away from. I them. did so. I did the math just to prove it to myself, and it turned out exactly right. That for about a hundred or hundred and twenty medical student class, you need an endowment of about one billion dollars to make it free for everybody. That's, so for all listeners with a billion, Yale is looking for a donor. We can do it, and we can go tuition free yeah. too. And we probably wouldn't put your name on the med school, but we'll put it somewhere. Well, oh, by the way, that was a very interesting thing. She first of all wanted to be yeah. anonymous. They said. We don't want you to be anonymous because your story, your personal story, by the way, as a faculty member, she was devoted to, to people in need. I mean, she was yeah. a beloved faculty member who was, you know, committed to to, to those who were disenfranchised, causes, socially yeah. conscious causes. And so they wanted her to come. She didn't want that. And by the way, you can buy your name on a medical school for like 200 million. That's right. So for much less money, she said, you know what? There's no better brand than Albert Einstein. Yeah. I don't want it changed. Yeah. I'm giving it. Anyway, all of it's nice. I, I think what it is is not just a financial contribution, but really a bold statement it's on a, the values of accessibility it's just and a great equity story. in healthcare. Anyway, it just I, I think it, it it also challenges us how to be creative with philanthropy, and and th- it's just a nice big signal. But you're absolutely right. It'd be very interesting to see what Einstein. Yeah, I hope I hope that they're able to commit themselves to serving the community, to serving underrepresented specialties, underrepresented areas. There are things they could do that they could build into this. So you don't think they should just take the best students? No, I, I don't. I think they should actually aim, even if they're imperfectly, they should aim to get students who are committed. So they should they should do social engineering? A little bit of it, yeah. Okay. Particularly for their community. Okay. Yeah. 
And right, look, by I, the way, Kaiser does that, and Geisinger, I I'm think, does that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Elicit yeah, yeah. your preferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Your, no, no. Perspective. So you, I know you want to get into this IVF thing. Let's hear what you got to yeah, say. Yeah, real quickly. I think our, you know everybody has probably heard at this point that the Alabama Supreme Court, uh, in r- reading the statute in Alabama, decided that if you destroy an embryo in a lab, you have murdered a human being. They've equated an embryo with a human being and essentially assigning personhood to a very early uh, embryo. An embryo is before nine weeks, then it becomes a fetus, right? So this is really early on. um, And this has enormous ramifications because Florida, as as you can imagine, was already marching down the train track toward uh, passing an unborn child bill that would have passed right about now if not for the Alabama uh, court ruling. And that would have put Florida in the same path as Alabama, which means IVF and most advanced reproductive technologies are off the table now. Let me ask you a question, just because I struggle with this a little bit. There's the issue about the pragmatic issue, which is I want people to have access to IVF. Does it bother you at all when people just discard embryos? Of course. So, so look, it bothers me. I mean, it bothers me. Yeah, I, I mean, I just no, I, I don't know how to even think about it. No. So I, I think like everything else. Life is life. There are different types of life that are out there. Um, we afford people different things with puppies than we do with humans, than we do with sheep and cows and other animals. Um, and I think that we should be thoughtful about what we do with any type of living tissue, right down to a tree, frankly. And we obviously afford different priorities for them. Um, but once you start to say that something is a human life, and if you have a religious foundation that then says that is um, sacred, it becomes a whole different ball. Well, and it wax. has great implications for abortion. I mean, if you're going to go back to that, I mean, that's how I feel. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think women should be able to choose. I think that people should be able to, to choose. But does do I feel sad and hurt for every abortion? Of course, I do. You I think know, that like, I think that we have to respect the fact that women have to have autonomy over their own bodies and have to be able to make those decisions. But it doesn't mean that we can ignore the fact that conception results in some type of cellular development that could yeah. be a human at some point. And by the way, we should feel that way when someone miscarries. It's a lost life. Like There's so many different ways that you can lose a life. It doesn't have to be intentional yeah. abortion. It could be spontaneous. So, But this is the greatest conflict here because now you have a group of individuals that very much want IVF because it is, quote, pro-life, it's developing new life. And now they're in complete conflict with the fact that the very nature of IVF means that you're going to be destroying some, quote, lives as well. Yeah. Stay tuned on this one, right? Yeah. Yeah, It's really interesting. So as we sort of wind up here, I thought you might wanted to say a few words. You and I have kind of been involved in this Faculty for Yale, which has attracted a lot of attention, some some yeah. good, some some not so good. You know, well, you want to just explain to listeners what what this is. So there's been a group of faculty members, including you and I, um, but but you know, it started off with probably twenty, and it grew to somewhere in the mid hundreds now, uh, that have come together with some common concerns and ideas about what we can do to help Yale continue to excel and continue to fulfill its promise as an institution of scholarly knowledge development and transmission. And even this podcast fits into that idea of transmitting knowledge uh, to the outside world, to the inside world, and so on, and educating people. And the two things that were most important to me in this 
and things that I only came to believe more passionately about in the last few years are free speech principles and institutional neutrality. And both of them, are, I think for listeners that might say, oh, those make sense, they're very controversial. I mean, there are reasons why I can understand people taking different viewpoints. I do not come to this in a simple way. Institutional neutrality very simply says that Yale as an institution should take a position on only matters that influence Yale's mission, again, scholarship, education, transmission of knowledge. If you're outside of that, Yale should not come out with a statement about its own uh, political or social position on that, unless it influences Yale's mission. And then the free speech issue is really that the best thing we can do on this university is have a free discussion. You and I do not have to agree on every topic, but we're willing to talk about it. We might even provoke people to say, you idiots, you totally wrong on this. Good for you. Tell us why it's wrong and let us rethink that. Let's convince each other with the courage of our convictions and the passion of our arguments, not by shouting people down or telling somebody they can't speak or, last point, students being afraid to speak in class for fear that they may be, get censored. Yeah, you, you and I were invited to a dinner where this was first discussed. And you know, at that dinner, there were some a lot of opinions that were expressed that I, I didn't agree with that and were me too. different. Yeah. And, but over time, this group kind of coalesced around the two principles that you said. And, and the group consists of people who's, who might be considered more on the right side or the left side you know, yeah. of politics, but, but we're, still could find common ground. Uh, you know, it, it emanated from the fact that university w could come out for Ukraine or, for, or against what happened with George Floyd was starting to take these positions. And for many of us, that didn't seem to be an issue until we ran into the October 7th issue where there was really highly polarized That's views right. within the university and the, and there was a question of whether or not you know we were fostering an environment where people could express those opinions but the university itself shouldn't take overt positions right. because while we may be happy on some days we would be unhappy on other days and it's not clear that they even had a process to do that that would you know be one that everyone could agree on. I was always concerned about this thing because what are the red lines? You know, if, uh, you know, just taking those university professors saying somebody calls for genocide of Jews, you know, is the university going to tolerate that? Right. And the question was really what's hate speech and so forth. But, but in the end, I was convinced through all of this that, that we should stand for, for dialogue, for, right. for free speech as much as, as possible. Of course, you can't yell fire in a theater, you know, there's certain things that right. are out of bounds. But for the most part, we should be fostering an environment where, where, where that kind of opportunity exists and where the university isn't on one side or the other, but is is trying to help foster these discussions. And that doesn't stop faculty from advocating That's having right. programs that are pushing certain That's things. That's a good point. Right? Important point. Like we're, we're not saying the faculty should shut up. We have faculty on this campus that have the entire spectrum of beliefs and have stated those beliefs. And there are people on this campus that have said things that to me are hurtful, but I would not shut them down. I would and not. we saw that in COVID. That's right. That's right. I mean, on COVID also, we had a we variety of We had people who were promoting ivernectin. I mean, nothing could be further than what we believed, but that's we right. also didn't suggest that person be fired. Be fired because- That's right. right. They, because they were reflecting on their science. I mean, what they thought, I, we thought that science was wrong, but it was up to us to argue that, right? Not to- And on, on the institutional neutrality point, people should understand that like, 
it's what you don't say that is also problematic at times. When does the university saying nothing actually say something? And people may read into that too much. So the institution should be as quiet as possible. Uh, and we were moving to a thing where you almost expected every day for them to come out on, right. on the topic of the day Whatever about where happens. did the university stand. I just think that's unrealistic that's also, right. right? Right. So a lot there. And I hope our listeners will link a couple of things in there for people to see about it. It is, I think, a, a more controversial topic than we give credit to at times, but I'm very happy well, to Well, and I think some of our colleagues it. assigned a certain valence and position yeah. to this where it's really meant to be to defend their rights to be able to say what they think as well. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback, to keep the conversation going, you can find me on threads in general. I'm at T-H-E, the number four M-A-N. That's at T-H-E, number four M-A-N. And I promise to reemerge on social media sometime <laughs> soon. But meanwhile, I still am on Twitter or X at HMK. Yale, that's H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. And you can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter, threads, our podcast, and LinkedIn, by the way, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. If you like the podcast, even if you don't like the podcast, oh I seriously, no, please, we're getting some more ratings. It's really very good for us. The more you rate us, the more the algorithm will draw people to see us. We want- and we love the algorithm. We like that, right? So please rate us, review us on whatever podcast platform you're using. You know, I don't know if I told you how, but you know, today I walked out the door and I, I told my wife, you know, this is one of our sessions. You know what she said? Oh, I love those sessions when you do that with Howie. You know, it's like it's fun it's when like, we do it in person yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is fun, and and uh, I really appreciate you. Yeah. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management, and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Inez Giel and Sophia Stump, and to our producer Miranda Schaefer. They're terrific. We love them. We appreciate them, and they make and we get to see uh, Inez today in person. In person here yep, with us. Yep. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.